Oh, well. <laughs> We've been looking at this theme of, of uh, Thrill of Hope, and it came from that song, O Holy Night. If you remember, we... We've been talking about Christmas hope, and I, I, that line that comes in from that song is just an incredible thing. And, and I remember that first week that, if you remember, we were talking, and uh, I was preaching on that, and, and all of a sudden, it just like a light bulb went on, and just thinking about that, that line, a thrill of hope, which I, th- I think is an incredible uh, when you think about this, this theme of hope that we've, you know, in, in as far as Christmas is current concerned, I mean, you you could think of a number of different things. You could think of joy. You could think of peace. You could think of of anything, in, including hope, that might that might somehow focus on what the season is really about. But I, you know, we've chosen to really focus on some of the songs that we sing and 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 really zero in on this theme of of hope. And and I I, I think it's really interesting because this this song, O Holy Night. Um, has uh, some uh, an interesting um, history to it, and I want to share a little bit of that with you. It's uh, it was a small French uh, province in about 1847 where a local parish priest actually came along, and and he came to a poet uh, and a a French commissioner of wines, and um, this fellow's name was uh, Francis Capot, and and he asked him if he would pen a poem for the upcoming midnight mass and Christmas service at the local church. And the man was kind of shocked because he, he, he wasn't much of a church attender. But at the same time, he decided, you know, hey, uh, this is an honor. And uh, he was honored that he was asked to do this, and so he accepted that invitation. Well, very excited, he sat down to pen a poem, and he needed some, you know, divine inspiration. And so he opened up his Bible, and I, I would invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 at this time. But he opened up his Bible, uh, this fellow, um, to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2. And this is what he read. I want you to, uh, if you would, uh, Luke chapter 2, maybe focus in on verse number, verse number 6. Luke chapter 2, verse 6. So in need of some divine inspiration, this is what this fellow did as he opened up his Bible to Luke chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for him them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. <coughs> An angel of the Lord appeared around them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly... Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who, were lying, who was lying in the manger, And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, 
And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So this fellow, after he read Luke chapter 2, he penned a poem that so many of us have come to know as O Holy Night. And after he penned it, he realized that it wasn't much, just a poem, but this was a it was a song in, in need of some musician's touch. And so he went to his friend, Adolf Adam, and he asked him if he would be a part of it. Uh, but a Jewish man, a man of Jewish ancestry, uh, this was a day that he didn't celebrate. And it was a man that he didn't worship, and yet at the same time he felt compelled to be a part of this. And so he put together an original score for the song, and three weeks later, it was introduced in Midnight Mass in the Christmas Eve service. And so, as you can imagine, quickly it gained some popularity, and it was loved, and it was appreciated and, and for the spiritual content, and it started spreading to the other churches until, well, that is until the Catholic Church found out who had written it and who had composed it, and then they immediately denounced the song, and it ended there. Well, then ten years later, there was a reclusive writer in the United States who got a hold of the song and heard it and realized that this song really needs to be shared with the world. And so John Sullivan Dwight picked up that song. Well, funny thing is he also had an interest as an abolitionist. And because of what was said in the song, just as, as much as the overtones of Christ, he loved the undertones that addressed slavery. And so he pushed as hard as he could to make this song popular. Uh, he identified with verse number three. If you remember the verses of that, or how that goes, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains he shall break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. O holy night. We call the night of Jesus' birth the Holy Night. But everything that has been historically holy was broken on this night. In fact, in many ways, there's, there was a redefinition of holiness that happened. Uh, for hundreds of years, there were, there were things that were set up a certain way. And In fact, if you look back into the Old Testament, uh, when just think about, specifically, think about the temple and and, and, and the temple grounds and all of that was that was surrounded by all of that. It, the temple itself was built in, in levels, if you will, to experience somehow the presence of God. Um, you had those outer courts. And, and then you had, as you came in, you had the, the inner courts. And then, and then there became that holy place. And then, and then, and then it, it, to even get closer, there was the holy of holies. But each level, to <clears throat> advance into the next level, it was, it, was, it was an exclusive thing. It became more exclusive the closer that you got to the inside. And then only one person once a year, the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies. For the shepherds, dirty and worn, to enter in was unacceptable, uh, unacceptable because there were laws about cleanliness. For the magi? Uh, for foreigners, 
to enter any further than the outer courts, <laughs> to be unheard of. But in one swoop, things change. It, 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 in one declaration, in one proclamation from the angels, suddenly it became, come as you are. And those deemed unacceptable were brought into the presence of God. The shepherds, dirty and worn, they came into the presence of God. The, the, the magi, unfit, they came into the presence of God. And, and they, they not only came into his presence, they were the first human beings to receive the message of the, uh, message of the Lord and then to go out and to proclaim that message to the world around them. Those who were deemed unfit, unacceptable, unworthy, then began to hear that message. There's, there's a lot of parallels, I think, between Luke chapter 2 and, and between this song that we uh, think of, Oh, Holy Night. Uh, w when you think about how this song was inspired by a forgotten priest, written by a local poet and, and wine distributor, and then composed by a local Jewish man, and then made famous by a reclusive writer in the United States who had an agenda for the song. But the fact was that the song pointed to Jesus. And we learn so much from the spiritual content in the song. But we I think we learn even more from the irreligious context of that song. Jesus came to transform, and he came with a transformative message, and he came to redefine order. He opened up his arms to those that the system, that the religious, that the institution deemed as unworthy. He gave worth to us by his invitation. This point, I think, in Luke chapter 2 is the tipping point in history. It's the night that everything changed. It was a redefinition of holiness. It was, it's not about inclusivity or exclusivity. It's about alienation versus reconciliation God called us all of us back to him remember what verse 10 says I bring you good news of great joy that will be for what all the people so I don't care who you are I don't care where you're from I don't care what you've done or what you smell like or what you have in your hand or what you don't have in your hand you are invited into the presence of the Lord you are invited to experience his joy. Uh, we look at this, and I, I think we so underestimate. We don't appreciate the explosion of, of goodness that happens in the Christmas story. We don't properly understand the joy that has been made available to every single one of us. But, but all of a sudden, it just happened. In an, instance, the in an instant, the Messiah is here, the Savior is born, and, and it came the way that that was completely unexpected. As I said before, you know, it's like if I had been in charge, <laughs> things might have been done differently, right? And as I read and I reread this story in Luke chapter 2, I, I lived in it this week, and, and, and this word suddenly, it just, it just kept gripping at me and grabbing me. And, and, and well, I remembered, uh, the th first thing that kind of came to my mind was, I, I don't know why, um, this might be considered sacrilegious as well. I just, just for letting you know, before I share this with you, uh, I just want you to know I've, I've, I'm not a Cubs fan and never have been. 
Um, but I thought this story was incredible because I don't know if you remember here about, this has been a couple years now when the Cubs uh, won the World Series. Anybody, I don't know if you remember that or not. I know, I know you do. <laughs> You're trying to forget it. Oh. So anyway, um, this was an incredible story, though. In 2016, that, that, that sudden success, I thought about the sudden success of the Chicago Cubs. They just came out of nowhere. But if you remember, you know, it's, it's always been, you remember the standing joke, right? Oh, yeah, that, sure, that'll happen when the Cubs win the World Series, right? <laughs> Nobody ever thought that was possible. I mean, it just, it just wouldn't, um, it doesn't make sense. And yet, the, you know, the Cubs do have a lot of loyal fans, as I understand it. I don't understand why, but they have passionate fans who are just, they had been just waiting, they had this pent-up, anticipation of what possibly could come. And I think of this story of this gal by the name of Harriet Hill Nilsson, or Hazel Nilsson, this gal right here. And just to let you know, she's still alive today. Um, people Magazine went on to say this about her. She said, they, it said, not many people have waited longer for the Chicago Cubs to win a World Series than 108-year-old Hazel Nilsson. Now, I had to look it up. She's still alive. That means she's 110. So if you, if you do the 2016, 2000, you got the math, you figure out how to do that. So she's 110. She was actually, uh, she born in August, I think 22nd of, of 1908, uh, about two months before the, the Chicago Cubs uh, won the World Series in 1908. Um, she grew up less than two miles from Wrigley Field. She owned a Model T, this article went on to say. She went to college during the Depression. She married, and she had two sons during World War II. And for nearly 11 de dec decades, she remained faithful to her Cubs. Here's what she said. Since I went to high school, and that was almost 100 years ago, I've been a Cubs fan. They were my team, and they lost and they lost, and they lost. And this is just a picture of her after, after the, the Cubs won. And, and uh, incidentally, they had now every year, they've had a birthday party for her, and, and they show it. And, but anyway, uh, it was such an amazing moment when they, when they won that. As, as much as I'm not a Cub fan, um, I think about the success that, that these people had right in front of them. And I, I, I kind of, I kind of relate to them being a Viking fan, you know? <laughs> because, uh, you know, people just didn't know what to do. It's kind of like last year when you, you get your hopes up and then, uh, you know? And I feel like that's probably what's going to happen again this year. But, you know, it's like, do you get excited or what? You know, should I get excited here? Because what happens if they lose and I'll be just let down again? But suddenly, that word suddenly, it's just an interesting thing because it oftentimes comes after years of anticipation. I mean, you look back to the Old Testament and you see Joseph and, and suddenly he is brought into the presence of the king, into the courts of the king. But it was 11 years of exile that he had. Or so many years of just praying 
of seeking God's help. We see Moses who went from prince to farmer and he was out in the wilderness for year after year and year, and year after year and suddenly the presence of God shows up in the form of a burning bush. We see here in Luke chapter 2 that the angel shows up and then, and then suddenly the choir comes and they proclaim that a Savior is born and that the presence of God is among them and it, and it just seems so sudden. Yet there, are hundreds, there were hundreds of years of, of buildup of anticipation for this moment. People had spent their entire lifetimes praying for this moment. Think about that. I want to just, let me just take a moment here just to kind of dissect this and to ponder this because before we completely buy in, I mean, you know, I, I, I read that and, and there's just a, a tiny bit of cynic in me when I read this. I think, okay, this is a holy moment. The thrill of hope that we've been, we've been talking about here for during this sermon series, they, they have this thrill of hope, but, but why, Okay. When I read it, uh, nothing has actually happened yet, right? There's this proclamation, but they haven't gotten anything. Their financial life hasn't increased. They didn't get any gifts. Um, the economy is still the same, the, as are the job numbers and the poverty rates, and, and the Fed hasn't decreased the interest rates. Everything is still the same for them. In fact, the shepherds, they were called to take this long journey. They had to get on this crowded airplane in order to go to a city that there was no hotel available. They had, a, had to sleep in a room with animals. They gave gifts in the gift exchange, but there was no exchange. They didn't get anything back. Sounds like a lot of our Christmases, doesn't it? So we see this, and I read it through, and, and, and growing up in this culture that we live in where we we look inward towards self, and our culture teaches us something, and, and we have this capitalist Christian mindset. And I read the story, and I think to myself, what are they actually getting out of this? It's interesting because recent studies have shown a rise in self-givers around the holidays. Have you heard about that? Uh, it's uh, Retailers actually have a name for it. They call it gift conversion. Gift conversion, and this is where people go out and they buy a gift for a friend or they buy a gift for a family member and they come back not with a gift for a friend, but for a gift for themselves. <laughs> I, I'm not sure how, sure how that works. You know, you're writing out the card to you from you, right? Let's just be honest here, okay? Okay, this is a safe place. Um, how many of you have ever done that? You had really good intentions to buy a gift for a, for a friend or family member, but you came home with a gift from your, for yourself. Raise your hands. Yeah, shame on you. No, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> we, we get into the holidays, right, though, and it's so natural. By the way, there were some... There were some nods, so those counted as raised hands, by the way. <laughs> but we get in the ha holidays, and it's just so natural to start thinking about us. And, and maybe it's not gifts to you. You know, maybe it's just an attitude like, oh, do I have to be around those people again? Right? And it becomes a, 
about what I want to do, and it becomes about what we can get or what we can take away from this experience, and, and that in, 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 in that in some way is, is how we read into this story. We read it that way with this cynic in mind. But the spirit of Christmas and the spirit of Jesus is very different. It's about what can be given, not what can be taken away. So we, we read the story, and, and, and what do the shepherds actually get out of this story? Well, number one, the fulfillment of the prophecy of the coming Messiah. That's huge. And number two, the promise of the presence of the king. I, I just don't know if we can properly appreciate this. I don't think that we can properly estimate the incredible thing that happens when you actually step into the presence of God. That is what they are given. That is what is received. It's, this, it, it's the simple adage that it's not what's under the tree that matters, but rather who is around the tree. It, it, it wasn't about the work that Jesus would do for them. It was about the worth that Jesus would store within them. Because, see, in his presence comes peace. In his presence comes joy and fulfillment. The soul feels, it, feels its worth, as the song says, in the presence of the king. When you step into his presence, he begins to change you. You can't enter into the presence of God and come away unchanged. It's impossible. It is a life-altering, heart-altering paradigm-shifting experience that we have. It's a holy moment. It's a defining moment. I love the way that this song depicts that holy night. A thrill of hope. The, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine when Christ was born. Oh, night holy night, O night divine. See, to experience the presence of God, it just elicits a, it elicits a response within us. That we, we just can't stay still. We have to respond. And, and this song leads us. It, it builds to a certain moment and, and crescendos musically to a certain moment. You read the poem and you you see that it, all, that it all builds, that the sentence structure and the capitalization and the, the exclamation points all build to this one moment in the song, to fall on your knees. The Hebrew word means to kneel or to bow, to give reverence to God as an act of adoration, to be attuned to him, to be attuned his presence. Psalm 95, verse 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker, for He, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. This is just a moment of awe before a mighty God. And, and the song doesn't ask a question, you know. It doesn't say, oh, Will you consider bow, bowing down? No, the song, it gives a command to fall down, to, to drop to your knees in humble adoration of our Lord and our Savior. It's not a gentle whisper into the crib of a baby. 
it, it, it's a shout from the field, fields that he is a mightyful and a merciful and a good and powerful and present and all-knowing and, and all-caring God. He is, he is accepting, he is loving, he is gracious to those people who don't deserve his grace. He extends his grace to those of us who don't deserve it. To be in his presence, to be in the presence of the king in this Christmas season. The shepherds respond to this suddenly in verse number 15. Let's, let's go, they said. Let's go to Bethlehem and check this thing out. Let's, let's see him. Let's see this child. There's a response to this experience, and their, their, their response is to go and to experience that fulfillment. They, they have been given this invitation, but just because they have been given the invitation doesn't mean that they have experienced the presence of God, does it? All of us in this place, all of us have been given an invitation, but just because we know the song, just because we know the story, doesn't mean that you have stepped into the presence of Jesus. Every one of us here has received the invitation, whether from a spouse or a parent or a friend or a child or a scripture verse or the promptings of your own heart. If we are here this morning, we have received an invitation into the presence of the king, and we have a responsibility where God calls us to go into the presence of the Lord. The shepherds, they shot, sought Jesus out. We are, we, are, we are not told much about their experience in his presence, but, but we are shown the aftermath of that. If you look at verse number 17, it says, when they had seen him, they, they spread the word. Or verse number 18, all, of it, all, all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Verse number 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard. And I think that the invitation this Christmas is twofold. I think number one, to get into the presence of God, and number two, to proclaim the presence of the Lord. See, at the end of the day, this story is about nothing more than the honor that we experience by being allowed into the presence of the Lord. And I think in a real practical sense, the, the way that we get into the presence of the Lord is by spending time in His Word, by appreciating the life that God has given to us, and time in prayer seeking the Lord. We are invited, we are invited into one of uh, and, and one of the greatest honors that we could ever have, that we could ever receive, is to come into the presence of the King. I read this story recently. And actually, I, I read it some time ago, and so when I stumbled across it here again um, recently, I, I just decided to, I thought, this, this really is a powerful, powerful story that I needed to share with you, but... Um, there's a fellow up on the screen. I, I hope we get this here. The fellow's name is uh, Raymond Edmond. And he actually was the president of uh, Wheaton Bible College in, from 1940 to 1965, so 25 years. He was very distinguished at Wheaton Bible College. But prior to that, he actually served in World War I. And after returning, then he, he went to college, and there were several colleges that he went to. and received BAs and MAs and all that kind of stuff and all these titles and letters behind his name and all that. 
And uh, anyway, he, he, he got out of college and he actually went uh, onto the mission field, became a missionary to the, to the country of Ecuador. And uh, during that time, I think he spent like, uh, I don't remember what it was, nine, ten years, something there, but then he got an illness, some sort of an illness, and was, was forced to come back to the States. And, and um, then he served, uh, began serving as a, as a pastor and uh, finally uh, ended up becoming a professor at Wheaton Bible College. And then, then uh, that was right before becoming president there. And he was, interesting thing is he was also the senior vice president of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. So that kind of helps you get a little bit of stuff that, uh, understanding where, who he, this man is. But anyway, on September 22nd of 1967, Edmund gave his last sermon at uh, a, a Wheaton College chapel service, and the title of that sermon, sermon was Entering the Presence of the King. He had just had the opportunity to go over to Ethiopia, and while he was there, he spent time with the king of Ethiopia, and he was so impacted by that experience that he wanted to share about that in, in his sermon. And so he talked about in his sermon about how, how he had to go early and how how he had to prepare himself and, and then learn some things before he entered into the presence of the king. And, and, and then he came in and, and, and he first stated his invitation and then he had to receive confirmation to come forward. And then he had to stop halfway and get confirmation again and, and hopefully he would, would then gain audience with the king. And, I'm, I'm automatically, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the, of the story of Esther and, and, and the way that she had to, to get that, um, she had to go through a whole bunch in order to get an audience with the king, and, 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 and she was his wife, right? Um, but you get that, that image there. But so he, he, he comes back and he, he shares this sermon, and he's talking about the parallels, how to, how to come into the presence of the king, and how we need to be prepared, and and, and, and we need to humble ourselves before him, and we need to understand and have a reverence for the invitation that we have been given, that to enter into his presence, there is no more life-giving thing in our world than to be in the presence of the king. And then he was talking about that, that uh, uh, he was talking to, the, to his students, and, and, and halfway through his sermon, he just kind of leaned over and, and then he fell over and passed away in the pulpit. It's just a sudden moment. It's just a shocking moment as he's talking about this. But what happened that day was that students didn't leave the chapel. They actually began to seek presence of the king. They began to spend time in the presence of the king. They, they started, to, they, they stayed all night long. And then after that, had began to have other all night longers. Uh, and and they, they began a, this revival that took place at Wheaton College and where the professors, they started to teach differently and the students, they started to learn differently and, 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 and churches started to be planted and, and people all around were just searching for ways to experience the power of God. 
Actually, it's such an incredible story, but see, I think that it goes to tell us this, that something happens in your life and in my life when you enter into the presence of the king. Yet the beauty, I think, of all of that is this, that everyone, everyone is invited. It doesn't exclude anyone. And unlike the king of Ethiopia, he doesn't make it difficult because he desires that all of us would come into his presence. And that, to me, is the power of Christmas. That, to me, is the power of this story, of this infant Jesus born in Bethlehem. That, to me, says it all. Let's pray. Lord, we, we give you honor today. This morning, we just, we, we give you honor, we give you praise, we thank you for your grace, a grace that is sufficient for all of our needs. And Father, as we read this Christmas story, we pray that we would have this, an understanding of what this is all about that we would just have an awe at what you have done. We have been invited into the presence of the King, the creator of the universe. And Father, I pray that each of us this Christmas would take your invitation seriously. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you.